What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 32 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kula Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the podcast today. In today's episode, we're speaking to John Lama. John is Editor-in-Chief at PBL Works, having also served as Director of Product Development and Associate Director since joining the Buck Institute of Education in 2001. John writes and edits PBL Works' PBL blog and other website content. He co-authored and edited BIE's project-based curriculum units for high school government and economics, the Project-Based Learning Handbook in 2003, and a series of books in the PBL Toolkit series. He contributes to the creation of PBL Works' professional development services and PBL materials, including the PBL 101 workshop and rubrics for 21st century success skills. John has also consulted on PBL curriculum development for the National Academy Foundation, the Oracle Education Foundation, and Pearson Education. Previously, John has been a consultant to middle and high schools on the use of standards and assessments, and John started out as a high school social studies and English teacher and he's even co-founded a small high school in his time too. Today we're speaking about John's book, Setting the Standard for Project-Based Learning. There are three main sections to today's interview. An overview of project-based learning, a bit of a deeper dive into what PBL looks like, and a bit of a discussion about the research around PBL and student achievement. I'll note that unfortunately John had somewhere else to be at the end of our discussion, so we only had about an hour to explore these issues. What this means is that I wasn't able to ask quite as many questions digging into detail as I usually would. There were numerous times within this interview, such as when discussing the measurement of 21st century skills, or when John was talking about designing driving questions, that I would have loved to ask many more questions to dig into more detail, but unfortunately there just wasn't the time. As a consolation though, this is actually part of a two-podcast mini-series on PBL, and next month you'll be hearing Janet Kolodner and I speak for about two and a half hours about a specific instantiation of PBL called Project-Based Inquiry Science. During that interview, we really did have the time to drill into the details. So I hope that you find this discussion with John Lama a good grounding in PBL Works' understanding of what makes gold standard PBL, and this episode is a fantastic lead-in to next month's episode too. As always, just a reminder about my weekly email entitled Teacher Ollie's Takeaways. I will note that if you haven't been getting this email recently, which I know is the case for several people, especially those using their school email or edumail here in Victoria, it might be worth subscribing via an alternate email address such as Gmail or Outlook. My email sending service seems to disagree with edumail for some reason. You can sign up on ollielevel.com forward slash subscribe or just from the pop-up you'll see when logging on at ollielevel.com. A big thank you to those who've been supporting the show via Patreon. And if you get as much sustenance and stimulation from the ERRR each month as you do from a cup of coffee, and I certainly hope that's the case, I would be eternally grateful if you could go on to patreon.com forward slash ERRR. And I'll give you that link again at the end of the show to sign up to make a coffee-sized donation each month. Such a donation will help support web hosting, sound engineering, book purchasing, and all the other good stuff that keeps the ERRR podcast keeping on. 
Thanks for considering becoming a patron. And now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 30 of the ERRR podcast with John Lama. John Lama, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Hi, nice to be here. First question we ask in the ERRR, John, is if you meet someone and they say, Hi, John, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I say I work with a nonprofit organization called PBL Works that helps teachers use project based learning. And I'm primarily a writer, and I write books and a blog, all designed to help K-12 teachers design good projects for students. Fantastic. And this is a new question, and, and you're the lucky first guest to ever be asked it. But, you know, I've been thinking recently about the importance of our beliefs of the role of education when we kind of propose different approaches and things like that. So I'm wanting to start the interview from now on by giving our guests an opportunity to answer the question, in your view, what is the purpose of school-based education? A lot of people these days talk about school-based education as a way to prepare students to enter the economy, the world of work. And that's part of the answer, but I kind of find myself resisting that. Like It's often given as an example of why we need project-based learning, because it gives students workplace skills. But to me, just being engaged in school while you're there is as important as preparing for future work. So I think it's just great for young people to get turned on by school uh, subjects, by projects they do, by books they read, or teachers who are inspirational. So I guess the goal of school then is to get a certain baseline of, of cultural knowledge and certain baseline skills. But beyond that, just being excited about learning, being excited about, about entering the world and, keep, and to keep on learning throughout your life. Okay. Thanks so much. That's, that's a great bit of background. Now, today we are talking about project-based learning. I was keen to start by asking, how did you get involved in the first place in PBL? I got involved with project-based learning back in the late 80s, actually. I was a high school teacher near San Francisco, and I got very involved with our school district's uh, restructuring committee. We examined the work of writers like Ted Sizer, whose book Horace's Compromise was very influential for me about how the typical American high school or probably in many places in the world, typical high school structures and ways of teaching were not very deep and were not engaging for students. So I tried to do some project-based learning as a teacher in the classroom. And I joined a school and helped found a high school, actually, that was had a lot of these ideas in the structure of the school. We had longer blocks of time, team teaching, interdisciplinary curriculum, site-based management. All these things were happening at once, including PBL. And I guess got very interested in the whole high school reform movement and changing the typical large, boring high school where students are not known very well by their teachers. They're not excited about learning. They just sort of go through the motions and play the game of school. So from then on, I pretty much have been working on that quest. And in 2001, I joined the Buck Institute for Education, now PBL Works, and we began to focus entirely on project-based learning. Okay, so what is and what isn't project-based learning? Project-based learning, lots of ways to define it. We, we have a fairly concise definition on our website, which is uh, one that I've seen people use quite a bit. In, uh, it's, it's cited a lot. And that is that project-based learning is a teaching method in which students gain knowledge and skills by working for an extended period of time to investigate and respond to an authentic or engaging and complex question, problem, or challenge. That's kind of a mouthful. One person I know says doing a project is an act of creation over time. So it's, 
it's a way to teach, the way to learn where you're doing a project. You're not just memorizing information, doing worksheets, textbook questions, writing down notes from a lecture and taking a test and forgetting it the next week. So it's a much deeper way to learn, and it's very powerful. Now, there's a lot of confusion, though, about what is and what is not project-based learning. So we make a big distinction between dessert projects versus main course project-based learning. A lot of teachers we meet say, oh, I do projects. My kids make a, a collage about a novel, or we build a robot in STEM classes, or we make a poster about a famous scientist and put it on the wall, and those are projects. But that's not really project-based learning. Those are kind of what we call dessert projects where you do it or maybe a side dish on the side of the traditionally taught unit. But most of the true learning takes place in the traditional way with with lectures and textbooks and worksheets and regular kinds of assignments. And then the teacher assigns the kids to do a project at the end of the unit or on the side as a fun activity. That's not really project-based learning. In our view, project-based learning is the same as the curriculum unit. The project is the unit. So... You launch the project in an engaging way with an entry event that gets students' attention, and then you teach them what they need or they help them find resources for what they need to complete the project. And so it's a, it's a rigorous, extended process. It's not just a couple of days. It's usually a few weeks. Two to four weeks is kind of typical. Some can last much longer than that. So it's important, I think, for teachers to realize that it's not just a uh, a fun activity for students. It's more of a different way to teach. It's more about learning deeply, depth over breadth, building skills, not just acquiring factual knowledge. And it's about making your work public. I can say more about that later. Yeah, that'd be great. In terms of that, the PBL acronym can also stand for problem-based learning. Is there a fundamental difference between the two? Yeah, we get a lot of questions about the difference between problem-based and project-based learning. And they're really two sides of the same coin. I wrote a blog about that, which I said problem-based versus project-based versus XBL. There's all kinds of based learnings these days. I've seen place-based learning, competency-based, and uh, I've even seen zombie-based learning. So there's all kinds of things like that, acronyms like that. We see project-based learning as a bigger tent, and, and problem-based learning is kind of a subset of that. That is, you can frame a project as solving a problem, a particular problem. Some projects are not exactly solving a problem. It might be creating something, you know, a physical artifact or something. So it's, there are different kinds of projects. But the problem-based folks would say, well, problem-based learning is a more specific way of going about the task. It's this sort of a more sort of set of rules or set of procedures students go through. And a lot of problem-based learning uses simulations or case studies that are realistic but not fully out in the real world. Not that all project-based learning is out in the real world either. Those can be also simulations. So the problem-based learning is a bit more, you see it's a little bit shorter in length, the duration of the problem. It can be more of a stimulation or a, a problem that teacher or professor sort of crafts to make sure students are exploring particular content in the course of solving the problem. And it doesn't usually involve creating any kind of tangible artifact the way a lot of projects do. But not the projects all have to have that. Okay, so maybe a bit, a bit more restricted or perhaps even guided. A bit more, yeah, guided, and then some of the problem-based teachers push back on me and say, oh, no, our, we're not too prescriptive, and we, we don't just follow a set of steps. It's more, it's more than that. So there's some variation within the, the problem-based world as well. Makes sense. Now, why do you think that PBL is important? Well, as I said before, I think PBL is important for a couple of reasons. Primarily for me, it's making school more engaging for students and more meaningful for students. 
because so many of them, even the good students, quote unquote, good students, they know how to play the game of school. They will study, they'll take the notes, they'll memorize for a test, they'll do the assignments, but it doesn't really mean very much to them. It's not very deep. They forget a lot of it rapidly after the rest of the unit is over. And so that's one group of students that PBL would make learning more meaningful for. And then for students who are disengaged from school, they don't show up, there's attendance problems, they just barely do their homework, barely you know, get by. Project-based learning can really make school come alive for those students. They will, teachers report to us, they've seen students who are, you know, their heads down in the back of the classroom suddenly come alive and become leaders of projects and their team if they're really engaged by a topic. So engagement's a big reason. And the other big reason is preparation for the future, learning skills, not just acquiring factual content knowledge, but learning how to learn, learning how to apply your knowledge to real world situations and real world problems learning how to work in teams, how to solve problems, think critically, use creativity and innovation, communication skills, all these skills that are important for future in school, future in in college, and in the world of work these days, especially these days, the economy is not just, you know, the industrial factory kind of economy. There's a lot more teamwork and problem solving and creativity needed for for lots of jobs in today's economy. Mm. One more reason I should not forget is that I think PBL is important for teachers, too. Some teachers say it, it brings back the joy of teaching because they don't want to sit there and hand out worksheets all day or follow a scripted curriculum they've been given by their district. It's much more creative and engaging way to teach. When you see your students' faces come alive with a good project, that's what you want of a teacher. So it's more rewarding for teachers as well as students. Okay, great. Now, the next question is about balance, and this comes from Tucker Barrows on Twitter. And they ask, how frequent should PBL be in for, say, a given year? And so, and also inclusive of for a given year level or a given subject? I've seen schools that do PBL all the time. For example, some of the famous ones like High Tech High or the New Tech Network in America. But I don't think it has to be all the time. We call wall-to-wall PBL. So when teachers are just starting out, we often tell teachers, just try two projects a year. It's, you know, one per semester. And then you sort of get the hang of it. You get used to it like it and you'll like it too and then you'll try more so it depends a lot on the subject area for example in math i think fewer projects is just fine i mean some math teachers are great at designing projects to cover a lot of their content but i don't think all math content can be covered easily through project based on so just a couple of projects per year perhaps is enough for math and same with uh, language learning with uh, you know french german spanish classes they also might have to do some more just sort of basic learning and with fewer projects. But in some subjects, like in science, social studies, history, English classes, you can do a lot of projects. I think probably three to four per year is a good average, but it could even be five or six. Depends how long they are. If it's a bunch of two-week projects, it could be more. If it's a six-week project, you'd have fewer. So a lot of it depends on the teacher's style, depends on the nature of the project, and the subject area, can, it can vary a bit there too. Because some problems are projects that students might investigate are multi-subject, and those might just take longer because they're more complex. So really, there's a lot of things that depends on how many projects you do. Sure, definitely. It depends on those contextual factors for sure. Stephen Colbert asks, how would you explain the relative common appearance of PBL in primary, but the sparse adoption at the high school level, barring science classes? High schools are tougher nuts to crack when it comes to getting PBL in the door. Um, 
if I can mix my metaphors. I was a high school teacher, so I know the beast. A lot of high school teachers, I think, enjoy being sort of the sage on the stage, kind of like college professors. They are passionate about their subject area. They love to talk. And so they'll talk about World War II or British literature or whatever all day long. And they like that role. And so it's uncomfortable for them, or it's new at least, to try and give up some of that sage on the stage and become more of a facilitator of student learning through projects. So it's a big shift, I think, for some of those teachers. And teachers are used to having you know, quite a bit of control over the class. So students sitting in rows, quietly taking notes during their PowerPoint lectures, that's kind of their ideal vision. But even they, I think, would have to admit that students aren't remembering much of your wonderful lectures after the test is over. So that's part of the explanation. And I think also at high school, there are structural barriers. Just the fact that the typical high school day is broken up into short segments, you know, 45 to 60 minute class periods. There's not enough time to really stop and slow down and think deeply about things or do projects. You have 150 students perhaps coming through your classroom door every day and six periods a day. It's a lot of students to try and get to know and support doing project-based learning. So there are a lot of structural barriers too. And I'm trying to think of anything else. Cultural barriers, to some extent, there's not a a school-wide culture sometimes in typical high schools. It's sort of every department or every teacher is off by themselves. This whole school sometimes does not adopt a particular teaching method. It's more up to different departments or individual teachers to find what they want. So it's hard sometimes for leaders to sort of herd all those cats in the same direction. Okay, yeah, lots of factors that play into it there. Could it be, I don't know, from my perspective, because I teach, for example, year 12 physics, and physics is an area, you know, as was mentioned by Stephen here, science is probably one area where project-based learning gets the biggest run through secondary school. But at the year 12 level, I would be afraid that if I were to take a PBL approach, I perhaps wouldn't be able to get through all the concepts that it's necessary for my students to understand for these high-stakes tests, for example. And also, I feel like it would be harder for me to monitor exactly the content of their learning and, and their level of understanding at each step, for example, at the end of each lesson or partway through each lesson with hinge questions and things like that. is Do you think that that might be a factor for other teachers as well? Yeah, you're right. That's a, that's a big factor. The high-stakes test that students take during high school or to get into college might emphasize factual recall and procedural skills, not some of the deeper understandings and success skills that budget-based learning teaches. So that's true. And couple things. I'll, I'll get say more about this later, but we think there should be plenty of content. Your curriculum standards and content should be embedded in a project. It's not just learning some something that's not important, that isn't going to help students do well on those high-stakes tests. I also would challenge the idea that, that you need to cover content to get students ready for those tests, because just exposing them to content, just going quickly through a bunch of lectures to touch on content is not really teaching. And so, when they learn it more deeply through a project, they're going to remember it longer and better when it comes time to take those tests. But that said, there, there, there's still a tension there, I realize, because the tests, you know, they, they do cover a lot. So part of the problem is the tests themselves and what colleges want. And we're seeing some change in that area. Some colleges in the United States are beginning to shift their entrance requirements away from just test scores. And they're looking at students' portfolios of work and things like that, evidence from project work. That, that It's small, but there's a growing trend that way in colleges in the United States. And even things like the AP test, the AP curriculum, advanced placement, that's you know famous for being just a, a full-speed charge through a bunch of content. 
to get ready for that test. But we're doing some research now with George Lucas Educational Foundation, some research on advanced placement, U.S. government, and environmental science. And the data is not out yet, but it's looking very promising that a project-based approach works better than the traditional approach in those two courses. Love to hear more about that. Yeah, I guess I'll also flag that you've been saying some stuff which I find quite challenging, John, in terms of saying that most teachers who teach in a traditional way would probably admit that their students forget most of what they've taught them following an exam. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm completely comfortable with that claim and there's ways to you know mitigate against that and things like that. And also characterizing content coverage as always being shallow and things like that. But I just wanted to briefly say that. But we can, you know, happy no, to right. suspend judgment for a while. Yep, you go. You're, you're right. I mean, there are lots of lots of great teachers there who are not shallow and in the way they teach, and are not just not just giving a Friday test and that's all they do. So I'm I'm kind of you're right. I'm being a bit stereotypical about high school teachers. There are plenty of of good high school teachers, great high school teachers who don't use PBL who do get good results with their students. PBL is not the only thing a high school teacher should use, but I think it should be about deeper learning. And I don't know, what we see in America, at least, is that most classrooms, you don't see deeper learning. You see PowerPoints covering content. And not to say that there aren't plenty of teachers who don't do that, too. We definitely agree with you there, which is probably a good segue into what really, when we're talking about quality teaching, what makes quality project-based learning? You talk about the eight essential elements. Could you tell us a bit more about these? Right. We noticed a few years ago that project-based learning was becoming popular and all kinds of places were introducing project-based learning curriculum materials and different consultants were touting project-based learning. And we're a little concerned that with popularity might come sort of a watering down of what PBL really was and it wouldn't be rigorous. And then it wouldn't it'd become one of yesterday's fads because people would try it. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't get the results that were promised. You might see their test scores go down if they weren't designing projects carefully. So to mitigate against that, we came out with our model of gold standard project-based learning. So it's got seven essential elements of project-based learning, and then the center of our model are the key knowledge, understanding, and success skills, the learning targets, the learning goals you want students to gain. So the, the essential project design elements, seven of them, I'll start with the challenging problem or question. So every project should be framed by some kind of a problem statement or a driving question. It really captures the focus of the project. And that's sort of a student-friendly question. It, it might arise from the students themselves to identify a problem they want to actually address in the community. Mm-hmm. Or it might be designed by the teacher. Typically, when teachers start out doing project-based learning, we, ask, we, we coach them to design the project more themselves and with some student input. And as you get more used to it, then you can have more student input into the, what the problem with the question might be. And we also typically advise teachers to start with the whole class doing the same project. Students might work in teams, but it's not every student, like 30 students in your class, all picking a different question, doing research. I mean, that's fine. That's a different kind of project-based learning, and there's room for that too. But most of the projects we coach teachers to design are done as a whole class, where students work in teams at least part of the time during the project. There's also the next element is sustained inquiry, and that means students are asking questions. Uh, It's not a full inquiry-based learning model where there's like it's not it's nowhere close to discovery learning because teachers actually coach students to ask the right questions that will help them complete the project and that will guide them toward the content you know the key knowledge understanding you want students to learn so inquiry then begins with students asking questions 
and then they find resources, they get information, they help answer their questions, then their questions get deeper, and they ask further questions. So it's kind of a, a spiraling process where students get deeper and deeper questions as they move toward, move through the project. Third element is authenticity. Very important to that projects are real world, that they they can either be out in the real world where students are actually solving a problem in their community or addressing a problem that their nation or the world might face. It could be a personal authenticity, so issues that are important to students' own lives, identities, and cultures. It could be authentic in the sense of uh, using the tools and processes that are used in the discipline, so students actually are acting like historians, for example, looking at primary source documents in their town and interviewing elderly residents about their town's history and doing original research, perhaps. So it, somehow it has to resemble the real world. It also could be a simulation where you create a realistic scenario. For example, when I taught government, my students would do mock trials. And so you do a, like a mock Supreme Court hearing or a mock legislature where students are proposing laws and bills. So you can sort of simulate the real world as well. Those aren't quite as engaging for some students who really like to you know, do the real stuff. The next element is student voice and choice. So they're given some choices in the project what products they're going to create, what they want to investigate, what perhaps even, as I said, what the problem or central driving question might be. That's more advanced PBO. Or they could also have choice of who they work with, what resources they use, lots of points during a project for students to exercise choice. And the voice part just means that you're honoring students' true voices. They're not trying to just give the teacher what the teacher wants. You know, when they make the presentation, it should be in their own voice, their own perspective, their own ideas that are being honored. Uh, the next element is reflection. Both during and at the end of a project, students should pause and think about what they're learning and how they're learning, the process they're going through, uh, how good is their product, how good is their answer to the driving question. And and that way, they also reflect on you know how they are as a learner. How am I functioning as a member of my team, as a learner? And then at the end, they look back over the whole project and think about those things, too, and also how the project was designed. Along with the teacher, they can give feedback to the actual designer of the project and how they carried it out. So that's another reflection also, as I think John Dewey said, we don't learn from experience, we learn by reflecting on experience. So you sort of, you have to have reflection, I think, to really internalize the learning in a project. Then there's critique and revision. Uh, critique and revision is important for getting high quality work, for making sure your products or your answer to your driving question are, are high quality. And we help teachers do a lot of work around critique protocols and feedback protocols. So it's kind of an iterative loop in a project, which oftentimes is difficult for teachers and students to make that shift to because you're so used to just doing an assignment, turning it in. You don't get it back and revise it over and over. You might in the high school English class, you know, revise your essay over and over. But typically, you don't spend as much time actually getting your work up to a high quality level as we recommend for project-based learning. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the public product. So students' work is shared with some kind of someone beyond the classroom. So they're making a presentation, perhaps not just to their fellow classmates and their teacher, which can often be really boring and students don't take it all that seriously sometimes. But if you have a public audience, I mean, you could bring in other people from your school community, other students, teachers, administrators. You can bring in parents. So you can have a school community audience or even take it out into the real world and have students go out to the community and present to their local city government or present to a local organization of some sort, or bring an expert into the classroom from the outside, bring in a you know, local business person whose students will present their plan for a new restaurant for their town to. So having that out, some kind of public 
audience, really helps students take it seriously. It ups the quality of their work, makes it seem more real. And it's also a great way to sort of showcase what your students can do for a school or a teacher. Fantastic, John. All right, now at the center of the essential project design elements for Gold Standard PBL, as you term it, you have key knowledge and understanding and success skills. I did want to ask you a question about success skills. Now, much of the discussion on Twitter and, and so on around skills and the idea of 21st century skills, kind of there's a group of people who really think of skills, and I would say I'm probably within this camp, as being relatively domain specific, meaning that, you know, creativity, it's hard for an individual to be creative in general, but creativity is probably easier to manifest in one domain or other, depending on the knowledge that that individual has within that domain. Mm -hmm. What's your view on the domain specificity of these kind of 21st century skills? Yeah, I think some 21st century skills, or success skills as we call them, I think are domain specific. For example, critical thinking or problem solving, or as you said, creativity. I mean, critical thinking in science is different from critical thinking when you're reading a piece of literature or mm -hmm. looking at history. So there is some domain specificity for critical thinking and creativity. Certainly creativity arts is different from creativity in science. Mm -hmm. But some, I think, are not domain specific. I mean, collaboration skills pretty much go across all subject areas. Mm. I mean, what you're, what you're collaborating about is different, but the actual skills of working in a team, I think, those translate pretty well across domains. Okay. And communication skills, you know, making a presentation or expressing your ideas in writing or using technology to present information, those kind of skills, I think, are not so domain-specific. Uh, so it depends what skills you're talking about. We also add project management skills to the list of key success skills. Mm. And I think project, project management is not particularly domain-specific either. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. I was really keen to jump into kind of the design and implementation process in a bit more detail. I'm kind of from go to woe and Jonathan mm -hmm. Ashley on Twitter was also really interested in this and Jonathan asks or states, I just love to hear John step through how he goes about designing a well-planned project and to which I'd add implementing. So just if you could maybe think of a project that has gone really well that you've been part of or something like that and I might interrupt you as we move along to kind of gain additional information on various elements of that project? Okay. Well, our workshops typically coach teachers on how to design projects. It's a three-day workshop called BBL 101, and we often give people two different ways to start. Some people like start want to start with the content standards, what the curriculum asks them to teach. Mm -hmm. So you look through your curriculum, you look at some certain topics that seem to lend themselves to more in-depth exploration, or you can imagine them you can imagine a project kind of coming from the content itself. Mm -hmm. The other way to start is just thinking about some real-world problems, some important questions students might want to want to ask. For example, is that they're growing up, a question you know, in adolescence could be, when do we grow up? So this question kind of occurs to you, and that question then becomes the driving question for a project. Other times you might say, well, our community has a problem with, we have a lot of immigrants coming into our community who are not feeling welcome, there are not enough services for them. How can we provide better services for new immigrants to our community? So there's kind of an obvious local problem to solve, and that could be tackled with a project. So it could start either way with actual real-world questions and issues and ideas that kind of just pop into teachers' heads from, from the real world. Or it could be something that you think you can cover a certain piece of your content by doing a project. So after you get the idea for the project, you would then quickly make sure that you are aligning the content you want to teach with your idea for your project. So you make sure that 
you think about how you can teach various pieces of content through the project. You would write your driving question for the project, or you might do that with students. There are two different ways to do it. You could do, you know, write, write your own driving question to the teacher, or you could give students sort of the, the problem, and then together you kind of craft a question to frame the problem that you're going to work on the project. We ask teachers to then plan uh, what are the major products students are going to create, or you might give them choices of products, or maybe students will have their own ideas for products. But you think about then, what are the major products that I'm going to use to assess student learning in this project? You also think about what other assessments you might need besides just the product. You could give them other assessments, like there could be a test or quizzes or other assignments you would give during the project to help make sure they're reaching the learning goals. So after that, that's sort of the main framework then of the project, the driving question, the basic idea of what students are going to do. They're going to create something. They're going to investigate this. They're going to solve this problem. You think about the audience. Who are they going to present to? And sort of begin with the end in mind, we say. You know, think about the end of your project. Mm-hmm. What's the big finish going to be? They're going to present their work to the local, whatever, local city government about how to clean up the polluted lake in their community. And so you sort of work backwards from that, that vision of the end point. Then we ask teachers to think about then all the sort of the milestones, the stepping stones you're going to take during the project. So we have them create a storyboard sort of map out the key steps of the project. And from there, they can then take those key steps and and make a project calendar where they actually plan the day-to-day lessons they're going to provide or the resources they're going to provide, experiences that will help students complete the project. So you sort of map out the project day by day on a calendar. While you always have to allow some room for flexibility because you never know. A project might take some unexpected direction. Students might take it in a, in a way you didn't expect. So you've got to allow some flexibility. You can't stick to your calendar and if it were carved in stone. Just on that, you, you mentioned the sequencing. This relates to a right. question from Damien Benny on Twitter. Uh, he was wondering if there's any evidence that different subjects working on a common theme um, with content being taught out of the natural sequence is more effective than subjects doing this on their own. I think what he was getting at, and he kind of alluded to this yeah. in a following comment, one of the benefits of kind of explicit instruction is that the teacher can very, very carefully plan a sequence of concepts or lessons to present an idea or a complex idea in a logical sequence that kind of progressively builds. To what extent does that have a role in project-based learning? And is there a risk that if we kind of provide less structure, students are less likely to encounter the concepts in a logical sequence and then therefore find it harder to build schema that accurately represent the information that they're trying trying to understand? Yeah, that's a good question. We don't advise that teachers always do interdisciplinary projects with several subjects combined because there is a danger, you're right, of of the subject area being fragmented and it's not in the proper sequence. I think that's very important. So I would say a couple of things. Perhaps start out with just single subject projects that you know the content of that project is what's appropriate for that point at school year and you build, you know, you, you still stick to your curriculum map, basically, but you're doing some of it through projects, not all of it. You're still using other teaching methods, perhaps in between projects. Okay. And then you can also have perhaps just two subjects, you know, math and science, where it's easier to sort of coordinate and make sure you're not teaching something sort of way out of sequence or just sort of tagging along to some other subject's project and you're just contributing the calculations for it. Typical math teacher complaint or English teachers complain that all they're asked to do is help students with the right the written report for the project that involves really involves history and science. Mm. So it's important for the subject to make sure the content of the project is what they think is appropriate to teach. And they're not just integrating their subjects for the sake of it. 
it's sort of a common stereotype that all projects must be multi-subject, and that's not necessarily true. I also think you're right that if you teach all projects all the time, there's a danger that you're going to miss some key parts of your discipline. You're not going to not going to build it the way students need to see it. So, I think you're right to be cautious about that, and don't just design projects that that jump around too much between subjects. Okay, maybe in relation to that, I'll jump back to the question we discussed earlier in terms of how f- the frequency of of this, and and you just mentioned not projects not all the time. For example, for a year ten science class, right, where they have to cover probably some biology, some chemistry, some physics, probably getting ready for some some really kind of content-heavy years ahead and leading into perhaps university, what would be your vision of how much project-based learning should go on in, say, a 40-week year at a year 10 science level, for example? So you're talking about 10 weeks per subject area, biology, chemistry, physics, if it's a 40-week yeah, Probably. I, I haven't actually taught year 10 science myself. You're probably more experienced with yeah. it than me. But, yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, I, I taught social studies, not science, but I, I know that. I mean, so I know I've seen a lot of science projects. I would probably say you know one project per subject area, so one per quarter would be about right. Uh, one chemistry project, one physics, one biology, and so forth. And because that's in, in ten weeks, I think some traditional instruction or some more. I, mean, I would still advocate for progressive kinds of traditional instruction, not just not just the textbook and lectures, but you know, five weeks of that, and plus a four-week project, plus some time to wrap up the, that that quarter. That sounds about right to me. Okay, cool. All right, we'll jump back into the the storyline of the planning now. You were just right. telling us about the sequencing and planning out the lessons. Right. So after you've so you've mapped out your project, you've got the you sort of got the major milestones planned out. You create your project calendar with the more day-to-day steps, allowing for some flexibility. Then you sort of have to assemble your resources and get ready to launch. And we always advise launching a project with an entry event, some kind of something that grabs students' attention, but not just a gimmick, but something that sort of gets them into the content, into the task, into the problem they're going to solve. And that generates, begins the list of student questions. That's when the inquiry process starts. They're given this, like, for example, I mentioned the polluted lake in your community project. You would take students to the lake on the first day of the project, take them out there to look at the litter, look at test the water perhaps, or just talk about how it looks dirty or it looks scummy or whatever. Wouldn't want to swim in it, wouldn't want to eat the fish from that lake. So it sort of awakens students to the problem they're going to tackle. Or it could be, there's lots of ways to do entry events. It could be a, a lively discussion. You could show a piece of media. You could have students do an activity. Lots of, you could have an expert come into the classroom and say, we need your help with this local problem we want to solve. Lots of ways to launch your project. So anyway, after you plan that and and the project is launched, then you the whole management process is a whole another whole another kettle of fish. So mm-hmm. we talk a lot about how to help students form teams, how to how to, uh, we we advise teachers to help to form the teams themselves, perhaps with some student input, but don't just let students you don't turn them loose. They don't form their own teams and and you don't turn them loose for three weeks and see what they come up with at the end of the project. There's lots of teaching that goes on during the project. That's another myth about PDL is that, that students are just on their own and teachers only there to sort of minimally guide them. So what, what we makes think a, there's lots of room even for direct instruction. Back to the group idea. Sorry. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your views yeah. on that role of direct instruction there. But back to the group idea, what makes a good group and how can teachers know that they're creating good groups? Yeah, a good group, sort of like a, in a healthy workplace. A team can have different kinds of people on it. It, doesn't, it shouldn't be all the same 
kinds of people on a team. You can have some. So we have, we usually recommend having fairly heterogeneous groups. You wouldn't want to put your highest achievers with your lowest because that could just be too much of a of a gap. But you don't want to have all your low achievers together on one team either. So some sort of it's really a judgment call by the teacher. You know your students. You know who would work well together. Who brings certain skills to the project? Like who's really good at technology? Who's the artist? Who's good at perhaps doing research? So you sort of put together a team you think will work well given the particular project you're doing. It's not always the same team. We advise mixing up the teams for different projects based on the needs. And student teams don't need to be working on every single thing together as a team during a project. It's also another myth. You could have students working individually at first, and then they form a team midway through the project, and that's where they bring their ideas together to create a final product or presentation. Okay, on that, I'm quite interested. You, yeah. you mentioned bringing together students with different skills, for example, and different interests. This is quite interesting because in the world outside of school or after school, if we were doing a project, for example, like this podcast, it's fine for one of us to organize all the microphones and the recording and for the other to, to come with some knowledge or something like that. But I guess in school sometimes there's, there's also a role of kind of making sure each student gains each skill to kind of, because right. that's part of the purpose of school, right? Skilling them up. So there, there's a little bit of a tension there in terms of trying to replicate the specialization that occurs in the real world and that has enabled humanity to kind of produce the stuff that we have with the role of school being to skill students up and kind of give them a broader scope for participation in the world concurrently right, with and, right. and following school. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We would advise teachers to mix up the role so the student, the same student isn't always doing the art for the project. Every student needs to have certain skills, right? You can't just have one kid doing the art and not doing any of the research. So you really try and jigsaw the work so students are either they're rotating jobs to different projects or they all have to do a little bit of some of the jobs on a project, even though they might be primarily responsible for the visual product or for the you know, the research, but they're not the research manager, but not the only one doing the research. So make sure kids are not just doing what they're comfortable in, but push them when they need to be pushed to learn to develop new skills. And when it comes to making presentations, we definitely advise that all students should present not just a couple of students as the spokespeople for the group. And teachers, I think, need to do a lot of team building with students so they feel like they're part of a team and they learn how to work together. So it's not just you can't assume students know how to work in a team. That's often where a lot of projects blow up because the student groups don't work well together, which can happen in the real world too, of course. So we talk a lot about doing those skill building activities. How do you plan a task together? How do you set deadlines? How do you maybe you could create a team contract but what do we do if our team doesn't do its work? If some team member is, is slipping or isn't doing their fair share of the work, how are we going to handle that? And all students would then create a contract and sign it, and they would refer back to it at checkpoints regularly during a project to see how we're doing as a team. If the teacher needs to intervene, that should happen. The teacher should be monitoring student teams, how well they're working together, meet with teams or meet with uh, team representatives frequently. And step in if need be, or direct students to uh, go back to their contract, or look at their collaboration rubric, or their set of norms they've agreed upon, and try and fix issues themselves. If, if the teacher has to intervene, then that might have to happen too. So where does that kind of norm forming sit? And could you give us a bit more detail on what actual, like this contract, for example, does it say what's going to happen to a student if they don't participate? Has it got consequences? Do you set the contracts as a whole class or... 
or do you get the groups to do it individually? And also what kind of activities do you do to help students get to know each other as learners so that they can more effectively work together? Right. It's important for students to know each other and for the teacher to know the students. So the teacher can assign students to teams correctly. So we, we talk a lot about getting to know your students. You can do an inventory, a written, you know, to tell me about your interests, your strengths, your weaknesses, what you need, what you're good at, what you're not so good at, your previous experience working in teams, what are some issues that came up. So you can get students to self-report a lot, which will help you choose who goes to which team. And then even before projects are launched, you do a lot of team building activities where students could, you know, play a game with each other or create a spaghetti tower or I've seen lots of little activities like that to kind of highlight what it means to work well as a team. And you could even build a, a checklist or a set of norms or a rubric together as a class. So how, how do you work well as a team? What does it look like when you don't work so well? So you could do a fishbowl modeling process where a team is trying to make a decision and you teach students how to make a decision by consensus uh, with a fishbowl where everyone's watching and, and taking notes. When a couple of students are in the middle working on it and everyone's sitting around the outside kind of watching inside Correct. and then you have a debrief at the end, how did it work? What actions did people take and what impacts did they have? Things like that. Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. You can do sort of little mini projects, like a one-day or a two-day project just to highlight how do you do research, how do you do inquiry, how do you ask questions, or how do you work in a team, or how do you do some project management, like set goals and checkpoints. So you can do little mini projects to sort of get students used to some of the skills they're going to need for the more major projects. And team contracts, I've seen them be totally open-ended where students write their own contract. Uh, we have some examples on our website, a couple of downloadable and free downloads you can get, of a, a little template for a team contract. And it could be developed as a whole class, where the whole class has the same basic set of agreements, or each team could have a, their own variation of it. Uh, you can't get super detailed, I think, in terms of the consequences, like you will be, you know, have to be kicked out of the group or something. But, but I think there should be some sort of process in the contract for what happens if things aren't going well, what are the steps we're going to take, which pretty much mirrors the real world. I mean, in the real world, a team would try and solve its own problems first before they go running to the supervisor to help them. Mm. So you're sort of teaching students how things work in the real world. Mm. Right. Thanks. Thanks for that extra detail. So well, um, what, what comes next? Well, let's see. So the project is underway and teams perhaps have been formed and they've got their norms, the contract together, and then they begin the work of learning what they need to learn to do the project. So we often talk of four phases of a project. There's the launch, and then comes the building skills and knowledge phase. So perhaps this could be delivered through direct instruction. There could be room for a teacher's direct instruction or lesson at that point, a, a lecture, a, a textbook. Could be a resource for students to answer some of their questions they want answered for their inquiry process. Or they're steered to outside experts to help answer their questions or resources on the web. Lots of places to find answers to your questions. So it's all kind of guided by the teacher. The teacher's not just stepping back. Every day there's sort of there are checkpoints, or every week at least, there are checkpoints. Are you getting your work done? You do a lot of formative assessments, both formal and informal. You're observing as a teacher. You're also having perhaps informal stopping points where students use critique protocols to share their work with each other and get feedback before they're ready to move on. So there's kind of an active, iterative process during the project. And so the third phase is when they're actually applying what they've learned to answering the driving question or creating the product or solving the problem that's central to the project. So you might realize at that point you need to learn more, and you go back, there's a little revision step there, a recursive step, like, oh, I guess our, our expert told us we didn't quite have the right 
point of view on this problem. We got to go back and learn some more about it. Then we'll come back with our second draft of our solution. So there's, there's a recursive process there in the middle. And then toward the end, the momentum is building, and that's when students are getting their, their final presentations or their final products. Not every project has to end with a presentation, by the way. It's sort of a myth that students are always presenting to an audience. It could be they're just making their work public online, or they're publishing their book of poetry, or they're writing their class blog about their thoughts about growing up, and that's the project's final culmination. There's no actual formal presentation. But at some point, students are sort of making their work public, the final form of their work, as polished as it can be, and there's a culminating event of some sort, publication day, presentation day, the day the expert comes back in and listens to your solutions to the problem, whatever. And after that comes a little time for reflection after it's over with and some reflection on what's been learned. There's some assessment that might come in there toward the end. You, you might have formative assessments assessed during the project, including quizzes or other assignments. You might even have a test that makes sure individual students are learning what they're supposed to learn. So it's not all based on what this, the team created during the project. There's some individual assessments too. That's very important. Okay, great. Do you find that teachers usually will include a test? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say usually. It depends a lot on the subject and the project. Some PBL teachers really reject the multiple choice test, the ones who are the most sort of, you know, gung-ho about project-based learning. But we coach most teachers to use, you don't throw out all your assessment practices when you do project-based learning. You can use traditional assessments. So use what you did before. Perhaps they're tweaked a little bit given the nature of the project, but you still want to make sure you have good rubrics to assess student products. You can you assess individual learning, not just group learning, that you assess both content and 21st century skills. And there's some peer and self-assessment built into the process. It's not just the teacher doing all the assessing. Perhaps the outside experts can help assess. So it's a little more complex in PBL, but it's not a total change in assessment practices. How do you assess the 21st century skills? Well, that's one of the things we're working on in our current research is helping schools and districts develop assessments for 21st century skills. So it starts with a rubric that describes the skill, what you should see when it's in place. You can give students certain performance tasks to measure things like problem solving or critical thinking. You can also use a lot of teacher observation and self and peer report. Students could keep a journal. They can somehow document how they're solving this problem, how they're using their creativity innovation process. They could document how well they're working as a team. Could be a journal, could be some other written documents where they're actually reporting on how well they're doing. So if you have to triangulate it, though, it can't be just a student self-report. I'm a great team member when the team members, you know, disagree. Mm-hmm. So you get, you might even get input from a whole team on how how well different members are doing. And the teacher also has their own observations to contribute to the assessment process. So it's not as you know, it's not as easy as straightforward as giving a multiple choice test on content. But there are ways to document it, reflect on it, and show growth in ability on those, on those kind of skills. Okay, cool. Also, some school districts are asking students to keep a portfolio of their work and then have a sort of a defense of their, of their work at the end of each year, say, in high school, or maybe at the end of the, end of the 10th grade, into the 12th grade. And students would then use evidence they've collected about their use of those 21st century skills in their portfolio, and they sort of share that evidence with some sort of a public audience and talk about it. Okay, and that makes a lot of sense because that's basically what a job interview is, right? Yeah, right, right. To defend your work with some evidence. Yep, yep, very, very good. One of the key things you brought out in the book was scheduling in time for reflection. 
So I just wanted to give you a chance to speak briefly about that. How do you build in time for reflections and what do those reflections look like and how do you make sure they're effective reflections? Good question. I think students need to reflect both during the end of a project and they can do it in writing. They can do it just orally in discussions with their teammates, with a teacher in a little mini conference. I think it's important, though, to teach students how to reflect. You could even do that in a fishbowl modeling process where students observe each other talking about something that's very reflective. Or you could give students an example of a, of a journal entry that shows you know, not very much depth of reflection versus a good, a good model of more in-depth reflection. So with models, with practice sessions, and then it, it, it takes time also. Students in your first couple of projects are not going to be as good at reflecting as they get later on. And just make sure you have sort of regularly scheduled time. Like every, every uh, third day, you're going to take 15 minutes and reflect in your journal about this or that, how you're learning, what you're learning, your success, skill, progress, whatever. And then have students have some sort of summary reflection at the end. It could be a class discussion. It could be a team discussion or perhaps it's some kind of written product where they sort of think about how they've grown, uh, what their struggles were, how they overcame them during the project, what they might want to work on next. So it's important to structure it, give students practice, and then regular opportunities. Don't just sort of assume it's happening. Okay. And and at the end, I'll ask you about some where where, where listeners can go for resources on these kind of protocols that you're that you're mentioning. For now, okay. I, I just wanted to jump a little bit into the research. Chapter three in in your book, the book that we're discussing today, which was entitled "Setting the Standard for Project-Based Learning." In chapter three, it's called "What Does the Research Say About Project-Based Learning?" And I just wanted to share a finding uh, or share, share something that that you wrote you wrote finding multiple k-12 research studies document that students engaged in pbls score higher on both traditional and performance-based assessments compared to similar students learning the same material using traditional instruction methods this is a robust finding from dozens of studies including thousands of students in varying grade levels and subjects there is also evidence that students engaged in pbl score the same as students using traditional methods. We could find no published evidence in K-12 studies that PBL studies score lower on assessment than traditionally taught students. Is this still the case? Well, f- first of all, I should say, when I read this se- section, I had a, a few flags go up for me because I'm always wary whenever anyone in education claims that this method is going to be the best, full stop. And to me, that's a little bit how that paragraph sounded and then how some of the other sections in this kind of what does the research say chapter said. So I just wanted to put that up front and I've had a little bit of a look at some research since. But I I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? We wrote that sort of to counter a lot of the stereotype that PPL does not teach content. And the trick is it has to be designed well. So a lot of research, like, for example, some of the things John Hattie studied in, in putting problem-based learning low on the scale of, of, in terms of effect size, I would question how rigorous was that version of project-based learning that was studied. So when it's done well, I think that our statement is true. But we do say also that there is plenty of evidence that students engaged in PBL score the same as students using traditional methods. That is, PBL does no harm when it's done well. So I think most of the studies that, that have a rigorous model of PBL that they're, that they're examining would, would corroborate that finding. But there are plenty of studies, I should say, this one in England you mentioned, 
that seem to show PBL did not have a good effect on students' reading scores. And there were a lot of problems with that study. I thought that I didn't, I mean, I'm not a researcher myself, didn't go deep into the, the, the nuts and bolts of it. But from what I gathered in reading about it, a lot of the schools dropped out or had some leadership changes that were in the, the project-based learning group. So they even said in one of their reports that it was not, that they couldn't say it was a real robust finding because of all these problems that the schools and the study had during the course of the, of the two or three years. Also, I would, they were looking at just reading scores. And I don't think PBL is a good way to in, improve your test scores in reading. I think it can help alongside a literacy program. But you wouldn't just drop your literacy program and count on project-based learning to raise your students' test scores in reading. I think there still needs to be a basic literacy program alongside projects in a school. Same for math. I mean, there are schools who, as I said, really progressive ones where they, their community is not so concerned about test scores and they want project-based learning all the time. But for your average school where test scores are still important, I think it's important to, to maintain those basic skills courses or, or for elementary school students or primary grade students, you still have your reading program, still have your math program. And this study in England, I think, was counting on PBL to actually raise students' test scores. And I don't think that's what PBL is best for. It can increase students' motivation to read and writing for an authentic purpose is better than just writing something you know, they know is just going to go to the teacher, but it's not a cure-all for your reading scores. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a more nuanced kind of take and presentation of the evidence than I felt was captured in the book, and I thought it was important for me to bring this up because I was a bit worried that perhaps a teacher who'd come across PBL was excited about it, or a school leader even, they read this book and this the book's got a whole chapter on what does a research say and, and that chapter very much suggests that PBL, you know, will always generate increased learning. And I was a bit worried that teachers or school leaders might go, Okay, great, let's drop everything we're doing and do PBL all the time. Um so yeah, it's 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 nice to hear that kind of more nuanced approach um coming out there. And I'll add, you know, you mentioned high tech high previously and and schools that have that have dropped kind of traditional maths programs and things like that. And it was interesting. I spoke with Jay McTie, who I'm, whose work I'm sure you've, whose work you referenced. Oh, yeah. I had Jay on the, yeah, on the no podcast days. and he said, I think his daughter works at high tech high and he was agreeing right. with what you said, which was that they come out with many amazing skills and they're incredible young people, but many of them can't kind of do maths or, and many of them have written communication issues as well as a result of that sole focus on project-based learning. So I think we're in agreement with, with that in, in many ways. Yeah, that's true. And I just read a book, I just finished it, called In Search of Deeper Learning by Jal Mehta and Sarah Fine. And they look at different models of high schools in America that you, that sort of looking for examples of deeper learning. And one of the chapters is about, uh, they call it Dewey High. And I think it's based on, on High Tech High. And it talks about how they're wrestling with the issue of giving all students a floor of basic you know, reading, writing, math skills, how important that is. And so that there's some pushback from their older veteran teachers, but the school recognizes that PBL can't teach everything. There needs to be a way, at least, for them to guarantee that students don't emerge from the school not being able to read or write or do a certain level of math. Totally. And, and all, yeah. this all harks back as well to the, the new question I mentioned I'd included at the start, which is, in your view, what's the purpose of school-based education? And, and within your answer to that question, you captured what I think is really, what I can tell from you is motivating your interest in PBL, which is making school engaging and interesting and stimulating for kids in the here and now, 
But also, as we've been discussing, there's that need to balance that with giving students the basic literacy and numeracy that's going to help them function in society and have successful lives, etc. So it's good. I'm happy with where we've got yeah. to with that, John. We are yeah. almost out of time. So I'll just, we'll jump into some closing questions. I might have to curtail or shorten the ones. Oh, there was a question about many argue that PBL or student self-guided work is the kind of work that leaves students who already struggle even further behind. Yes. And that is definitely, that's an issue which connects to what we were just talking about. These students still do need basic skills to be taught, but it's not as self-guided as some of the stereotypes, as I think you've gathered from what I've said. We think there's, the project-based teaching role is very important. It's not just letting students struggle. It's giving them even direct instruction if they need it during a project. Yep. Okay, great. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think more discussions like this where we can really draw out the nuance of what we mean when we speak about PBL direct instruction and how they can work together, I think is only going to help move education forward. So that's fantastic. What's next for John Lama? What are you currently excited about, John? Oh, well, let's see. We're doing a couple things at PBL Works that are exciting. We're developing a project library of downloadable projects for teachers because we know that not all teachers can design a project easily. Perhaps they don't have time for it because teacher schedules are definitely overpacked. They aren't given the time. They perhaps, you know, aren't bursting with creative ideas or they maybe just get stuck and need a little help, a little jump start. So we're creating a, a project library with different kinds of projects that are sort of typical topics, but they can be given a project that already has a driving question, the basic steps, some of the materials they need. That will allow them to, to experience success with project-based learning. They'll come back for more. That's exciting. We're also studying how to bring project-based learning to scale in two areas, in, in Hawaii and Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, where whole districts are attempting to bring project-based learning to scale for all of their teachers and students. And we're sort of learning also how they can, how they can measure success skills. So that's an exciting effort. What else? I think it's time also to write a new book about project-based learning in high school. The one I wrote about nine years ago, the PBL Starter Kit, has uh, reached the end of its life, and it's time for a new book. So I'm hoping to get that started next year. Sounds good. We'll keep our eyes out for that one. Where can people go to get more yeah. info on project-based learning, and especially this new stuff that you're coming up with in terms of teacher resources and, crucially, assessing those 21st century skills? Right. Well, our website, pblworks.org, has lots of resources, and I manage our blog. There's always some blogs, and you can search our blog for various topics and get a lot of advice from both our national faculty facilitators, our workshop uh, facilitators, as well as guest blogs from practitioners all over the country and from other places in, in across the world. So check our blog. And also our, our books, of course, are on there. On Twitter, I'm semi-active on Twitter. There's a good hashtag PBL stream and a hashtag PBL works stream. And I look at a couple of bloggers like John Spencer and AJ Giuliani. I always love their work. And every, uh, every month I have a PBL resources blog, and those guys often wind up in my list of top 10 resources for the month. And I offer a lot of connections in, those, in that blog every month called PBL News and Views, connections to resources and articles I found about project-based learning. But so staying in touch, you know, following us on Twitter is a good way to stay in touch and um, checking our website for updated materials. And we have lots of workshops for teachers we offer. We travel all over the country and sometimes around the world delivering workshops and presentations. Fantastic. Well, John Lama, thanks so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and, and really getting into some of the depth and the nuance and the detail of project-based learning and what it takes to actually make it work well. 
And yeah, just one quote that I really appreciated from Dewey that you shared was, we don't learn from experience, we learn from reflecting on experience. So, so thanks for your time today, John, and we look forward to your work in future. All right. Thank you, Ali. Good questions. Nice talking to you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with John Lama. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. And as mentioned during the intro, if you'd like to become a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign up. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.